This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu.
than those who are insisting and uh, exerting pressure on Japan to uh, repeal Article 9 is the U.S. government. So I, I belong to the last generation to have experienced uh, the war in Japan, uh, born in 1935. And my own war experience consists of hunger, acute hunger, and the fear of uh, aerial bombing. And, and at the end of the war, Japan's defeat in war meant for me liberation from, from those fears. So I greeted the Constitution with great joy. It meant that we no longer had to live in fear of war, that we could also imagine a future that was going to be free of war. And moreover, um, it was also thrilling to think of a constitution that guaranteed gender equality. This is a clause that is, should especially be attributed to a 22-year-old American woman, Beata Sirota Gordon, who held very firm on having this clause put into the constitution. <coughs> So from high school through college and then my career as a lawyer, I have dedicated my energy to safeguarding peace according to the Constitution and defending uh, gender equality and the rights of women. So I've, I've been involved in many, many movements. I've been especially um, involved in the movement to safeguard, to preserve the Constitution in Article 9. But things have steadily deteriorated, uh, again, largely to pressure from the United States, that with the um, outbreak of the Korean War, 
were made to form a police force that then turned into a self-defense force. And this so-called self-defense force has now become the second largest military power uh, in the world. Again, all under, at the behest of the United States. And so our topic for today has to do with the 15-woman lawsuit that took the, the government of Japan to court for sending the self-defense forces to Iraq. The, the, way, the day we entered the court was, uh, entered the case, the lawsuit was August 6, 2004. It is the anniversary of the day that the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. <laughs> uh, the reason I became involved in this lawsuit, why I decided to take it on, has to do with a young man who visited the University of Chicago last month, um, Imai Noriaki. Many of you know him as Nori. <laughs> When he and the two other young hostages um, were uh, taken in Iraq in April of 2004, this one year into victory, um, with the uh, demands of U.S. I mean, I'm sorry, the self-defense forces in exchange for their lives, we, myself included, went every single day to demonstrate in front of the prime minister's residence and also to sit in to demand the withdrawal of the self-defense forces.
出て行って戦場にも出て行ってそれで、えー、そこの、えー、被害を受けている人たちの救援のために活動をしたわけですあの若い日本の若者たちはそれを見てああ私は一国平和主義じゃないつもりだったけれどもやっぱり日本の中だけで、えー、平和平和憲法9条を守れというだけではダメなんだとその時思いました。What I kept thinking as, as I demonstrated and sat in front of the Prime Minister's residence along with others was that Imai Noriaki at age 18 had actually gone all the way to Iraq. And I myself had thought that I wasn't a believer in pacifism in one state. She、um, tellingly said initially socialism in one state, but she said pacifism. I didn't think of myself as a believer in one, of pacifism in one state. But I realized that、uh, all the years, all the decades that I had been dedicating myself to the peace movement and to the protection of Article 9 in Japan, things, the reality had only gotten worse. And that the gap between the principle articulated in the law, in the Constitution, in Article 9, and reality had only expanded. And in the meanwhile, here were young people from Japan going to Iraq, to the battlefields of Iraq. To try to confirm with their own eyes what they were going on. They had crossed national borders and gone. And I realized then that maybe I myself, in fact, had fallen into、uh, working for pacifism in one state. そこでの今の戦争を過去の戦争の、えー、思い出だけじゃなくて現在の戦争とつながらなければいけないそれをやめさせるために行動しなければいけないと思いました。そこで私は思ったのは、私は私の思いを持っているときに、私の思いを持っているときに、私の思いを持っているときに、私は私の思いを持っている That was connected with wars going on in the present moment and to work to stop those wars today. So, in the first time, なぜ、えー、女性が集まってやったのかということについて少しお話しします。And that's why I became involved in this lawsuit of 15 women. In fact, there were 15 women and two lawyers. I was one of the two. So 17 women、uh, embarked on this lawsuit in Tokyo District Court. And I want to explain why then we, these women got together.、えーそれはえー、と私が何人か親しい、えー、の女の友達女友達と集まった時にイラクのため戦争のために何かしなきゃいけないね何かしたいねというところで一致しましたその女性たち数人とえそれでじゃあちょうどその時にすでに裁判があちこちで起こされていました日本の各地で
それで東京でも起こされてましたそれでじゃあ私たちはあのちょっと友達に呼びかけて何人か集まって一緒に裁判を起こそうよという話になりました I, I was talking with a few of my women friends and, and we said Uh, we find ourselves saying to each other and agreeing that there's something, we really want to do something about the war in Iraq right now. And having agreed that we wanted to start up some action,、uh, we decided to call on each of us to call on others of our friends. Just 
civilian homes then made of paper and wood. And so as you can imagine, if you drop thousands of firebombs on a city like that, then, then the city is turned immediately into a sea of flames. So 100,000 people killed all in overnight. She says, I think there's nothing to, to call this but a violation of international law, as is the case, uh, she believes, with the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki.
other plaintiffs who've been working on domestic violence. Others who are dealing with you know, education problems because the Japanese educational system is rapidly returning to its pre-war principles. And the youngest of the plaintiffs is a woman who happened to be living quite near the World Trade Center at the time of 9-11 because her husband had been, because of her husband's job. Do, do any of you know about Peaceful Tomorrows, the 9-11 uh, families who gathered together to say, not in our name, don't engage in, in wars of, of revenge in the name of our loved ones who were lost. So this youngest of the plaintiffs felt, um, was, was, of course, shocked and hurt herself, traumatized herself, but she felt great identification with the Peaceful Tomorrow's movement of the Not In Our Name. ま、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、
まり知らなかったでしょ戦争ってみんな知らされないんですよね後からもうずっと後になってから知らされるそれがとても恐ろしいことだという意見陳述をしましたこれは今でも言えることなんじゃないでしょうか So one of the plaintiffs born in 1932 is a woman engaged in a, a legal battle with her company, the company where she's employed, for gender discrimination. But she writes about having been 13 at the time um, Hiroshima was bombed um, and thinking about other children born in that year who、uh, were killed. And she said、um, that she's reflecting on that in her statement to the court on the last day of the hearing. She says, I didn't know until long after the end of the war. When I think about what it was I was doing at the time, my heart aches. The shock of not having known, the shock of not having been informed. This was the case with Okinawa, the Battle of Okinawa, the, the Nanjing Massacre, Unit 731, and the Comfort Women. I learned about all these things much, much later. Well, war is also about this kind of restriction on people's psyches and on what they know. And I feel that this is something that can be said today, too. I'm wondering how much you know about what is going on in Iraq today. Perhaps you know quite a bit more than when the war first began in 2003. But that is the way war always is. It begins, and, you don't, and the people,、um, don't, people don't know what is going on at the beginning. And it's only retroactively that they come to know what, it, what was going on. I want to talk about the issue of, of women and war and the relationship between feminism and war, but I'd like to, if it's all right, I would like to hold that off. For the question and answer or a discussion session, and if there are questions, it's something I would like to address in response. えー、米軍を支援している今も支援しています陸上自衛隊は引き上げたけれども航空自衛隊は、えー、と米兵とそれから軍事物資弾薬を運んでいますほとんど、えー、8割はその仕事をやっている航空自衛隊です日本も So, in launching this lawsuit, we were, we were questioning what the Self Defense Force was doing in Iraq, in spite of the fact that we have this constitution, in spite of the fact that Article 9 still stands.、Um, the grounds, and, and the Self Defense Force continues to fill this role of assisting the United States troops in Iraq. The ground Self Defense Forces have been withdrawn, but the air Self Defense Forces are still there, transporting U.S. troops and、um, explosives. So, 80% of that is, is, is what they are doing currently. 
この血まみれの少女の写真を見てくださいじっと見てくだ見つめてくださいと言って裁判所で法廷で訴えました日本の裁判所ではそういうことあんまりやらないんですアメリカでは割とやるでしょ少しパフォーマンス的な感じ<笑>でも日本ではねもっとあの事務的なんだけどちょっとパフォーマンスをやりました早く So, unfortunately, I can't show you the image right now, but we submitted as evidence many images and writings to have the justices、um, confront evidence of what is going on on the ground in Iraq today. And I stood in front of the bench with this photograph from the cover of Days Japan, which is now an internationally awarded、um, a photo journal. Of, of a very bloody young girl being carried by men. And she stood in front of the three judges and said, Take your time, please take your time and look at this picture of this bleeding girl. This is something we don't do very much in the courtroom in Japan.、Uh, I know that you're much more dramatic or performative in US courts, but in Japan we tend to be much more business like. But I really wanted the judges to be confronted with this photograph. それで私たちは、えー、と裁判所に何を求めたかというと、もうすぐなります。何を求めたかというと、えーあの、自衛隊をイラクに武装して派遣するのは憲法違反である、これはもう明らかな憲法違反です。それがまず第一ですが、えー、日本の裁判所は、ただ、この法律が憲法違反であるということだけではあの判断をしません。具体的に誰がどんな被害を受けたか、直接被害を受けた人が訴えたらその被害に対して、えー、あの判決を下す、えー、損害賠償をせよとかいうそういうシステムになっています。アメリカもそうですよね。So, what, what, did we seek to, what were we seeking in this, in this lawsuit?、Um, first of all, we wanted the court to recognize what was unambiguously a violation of the Constitution to send the armed self defense forces to a war zone. But that is not sufficient in Japan、um, because there's no constitutional court, which is something that can be addressed later in Japan. So, even if there's a violation of the Constitution, in order to bring a case to court, You have to be a person who can show concrete injury as a consequence of the state's action. This is similar to、uh, US laws, it's called standing. So, we have to be a So, what, what were we going to assert as rights that had been violated? The first is the right to, a peaceful,、uh, to, to live in peace, which is、uh, clearly stipulated in the preamble to the Constitution. The right to live in peace is 
is uniquely stipulated in the, in the Constitution of Japan. And the, the heart of that right is the right not to be compelled, to be free of compulsion to kill or be killed. Right? It's not just not to be exposed to the risk of being killed, but to be not to be compelled to kill others. And I'm wondering if that's a kind of argument that takes place in the United States. In Japan, it's the Constitution that gives a basis for such argument. Yeah. 
されて、けが人はもっともっとたくさんいます。そういう、えー、とアメリカの人たち、そしてそれを超えるこう10万人、5万人とか10万人と言われるイラクの人たちが悲惨な状態で殺されたり、けがを受けたり、拷問を受けたりしていますよね。そういういことについて想像力を持ってそれでそ,れをその苦痛を自分の感じる感性その感性があるかないかということを問われているのではないかと思います私たちはそれを苦痛に感じて裁判を起こしました結論として、えーまあ、裁判では敗訴しましたけれどもそのことを私たちは、えー、訴えてみんな周りにも広げていきましたそのことに意義はあったと思います今まだ続いている、えー、この悲惨なことを、えー、受け止められる感性をみんなが持ちたいなと思っております以上です OK so、um, the, the, the three factors、um, that are important here one is that What is the source of this pain that experience, the, the injury we feel in having this,、um, this self defense forces of Japan participating in this war? The first is the, the war experience that either we are old enough to have experienced and remember ourselves, or that we heard about from our mothers and grandmothers.、Um, that's one thing. The second is the disclosure, the widespread awareness. This was certainly not the first time it was disclosed in the early 1990s. Of the military、uh, comfort women, the sex slaves, to realize that this had gone on in World War II, that this was part of our、uh, responsibility as perpetrators, and that we had failed to make compensation for these crimes. And thirdly, is to be witness, to be aware of the killing that is ongoing、uh, in Iraq right now. That it's now over 3,300 US troops have been killed, many, many more injured.、Um, as for numbers of Iraqis killed、um, and subjected to unspeakable suffering and torture, some say、um, 50,000 or 100,000, it's very hard to pin a precise number on it. But it is an actual ongoing source of pain for us to imagine this suffering going on. Amongst all the parties involved in this war. And、um, we, were, we lost this battle. We were,、uh, our lawsuit was rejected, our claims were rejected. But we still feel that there was a point, there, it was meaningful to have made our case in this way. We continue to believe in the things that we asserted in court and continue to be active. There are, by the way, other,、uh, other lawsuits of this kind still going on in Japan, they're, they're not all finished. And what I want to affirm here, I want to emphasize here, is the sensibility of being able to share the pain that is not immediate to us. And that is a question I would like to pose to you, too. I understand that most of you who are in here at the University of Chicago are little likely to find yourselves as soldiers in Iraq. Put that aside. Is there, is there a sensibility, can, is there sensibility developing here? That is able to、um, imagine the suffering that is going on physically far from here.
That is a sensibility that we plaintiffs had developed through the experiences, the three points that I enumerated right now. And that's the question I want to end my part of the presentation with. politics being judicialized as they are. 
why are we seeing um, forms of, 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 of um, constitutional law being evoked in order to imagine both the making and the unmade for making of nations? But I'd like to, to ask or start this conversation um, by making a point that, that actually almost slid by um, in its power in, in the paper. Uh, we have an extraordinary account of the basis of the suit in a doubling. On the one hand, in psychic and emotional damage. And I think very rarely have I seen such a persuasive account made between historical experience and the experience of the present. Those of us who grew up in anti-fascist struggles, as I did, I lost my citizenship to an anti-fascist struggle, know precisely how memory really plays into the present of pain. The basis of this lawsuit is partly about psychic and emotional damage, partly about historical consciousness come back to haunt one psychic and indeed the, the collective psychic well-being of the nation. Uh, its other part is security risk, uh, of course, a language which we all be found, uh, had to live with in its banalized forms. But somewhere along the way, one of the witnesses says, what this war also evokes is domestic violence. And this, to me, is a very powerful, uh, powerful invocation, because warfare often obscures and opens up at the same time the cracks and the fissures of the face of civil society. And why it is that one of the litigants, one, one of the, 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 the members of this class action, should see a parallel, an analogy, between domestic violence on the one hand and global violence on the other hand is a very powerful question. It's a powerful question precisely because constitutions often protect us from what we don't need protecting and often fail to protect us from what we do need protecting. And of course, the failure is always the banishment of violence. And the parallel between domestic, between privatized violence and global imperial violence is often much closer than we think. The character of the US war in Iraq, after all, will leave many more families damaged than it will Iraqi soldiers killed. It will leave many more um, eco local economies devastated for a generation than it will leave men in uniforms who after all permit themselves to walk there incarcerated. And it is that the, the power to force those kinds of juxtapositions that I think the story tells us powerfully. It seems to me that the three questions that this paper raises, very powerful, these for me as a non-specialist, um, is why did the suit actually fail? Uh, it was, after all, uh, from the perspective of a comparative legal scholar, an extremely powerful one. It was very powerfully argued. The um, quality of the litigation, if this were any, in any international court, was about as good as it gets. Um, I've heard many less convincing arguments win cases like this in constitutional courts across the country. This one lost. The question then becomes, what is it that caused the loss? It's not law. It's not the capacity of the, of the, of, of the plaintiffs and, and their legal representatives to make a good case. Something intervenes, in other words, between justice and judgment. And the question in this case is, what intervenes? between justice and judgment. And this is a question that we in the US ought to be asking ourselves, because we're going to have similar kinds of lawsuits, not under constitutional law, but under various other kinds of property law, tort law, in years to come. And the same kinds of issues are going to arise. What cases become winnable against the imperial tendencies of an illegal administration? And where and how does justice lose out to judgment?
That's the first question. The second question is if this was a case brought by 15 women. There's a truism now in anthropological theory which says, you know, once upon a time we worried about social class. Now we worry about class actions. Uh, this shift from class to class action is very striking in this instance because it was conducted by 15 women. To what extent was this a nation reflecting on itself through the optic of gender? And what is at stake in doing that? Now, this is a question that's very powerful, powerfully posed, again, comparatively. After all, some of the most powerful arguments that are being fought now are against xenophobia, against all kinds of, of, of injustice across the planet, are increasingly becoming women's movements. What does that tell us about the nature of politics? Is politics migrating also into the domain of gender and of generation, away from the things that used to be located in life? Class, life inequality, life after strangers as well. So the second question that this raises is what does this tell us more about the relationship between gender and the political across the planet? The third question that it raises for me is the following. What is especially powerful about this case is that it defines a class of human actor through suffering victimage. How general a phenomenon is this? How, is this? How more and more are we coming to know identity itself through suffering, through victimage, through trauma, through hurt? This is an argument that Wendy Brown makes in, in her book States of Injury. It's a very powerful argument. More and more are we knowing ourselves, not through the positive, not through claims to culture, through claims to, to, to positive value in the world, but to trauma and to industry. Right. Trauma and injury. Does this mean that we are caught up in a political age in which, in effect, mobilization is predicated purely on the negation of our humanity? And if that's the case, what does it tell us about the world we live in at the contemporary moment? How can we envisage reversing that process and making a positive politics that actually impacts upon the world before the world impacts upon us, before the world makes all of all of us different versions of those 15 very brave women? Thank you.